0: You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Church family, good to see you here this morning. Glad you're with us. If uh, you're a guest among us again, I wanna welcome you. My name is Shay Stumlin, one of the pastors here. Grateful you're with us. Thankful you survived Snowmageddon 2020 yesterday. We're here, we're alive. So if you got a Bible with you, turn with me, if you would to Romans chapter one, hold your place there and then find Philippians four. We're gonna get there after that. Romans one, Philippians four. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, if you need one, there should be one under a seat somewhere in front of you. That's our gift to you, by the way. You can take that home. And uh, Romans one, Philippians one, those two letters written towards, in the New Testament towards the end of your Bible. So go about three quarters of the way through. You'll get close there. By the way, the table of contents is your best friend. So go meet him, her, turn there. All right. Romans 1, we'll get there in a bit. Last week, if you're just uh, joining us, we began a new series last week called DNA. We're looking at the kind of the DNA of Northway Church, who we are, what we're about, the Lord has put us here for. We began with our mission statement last week, which is simply... We exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is why we're here ultimately as a church, as the redeemed ones, Christ followers, to give all glory to God. His name above any other name that he would be worshipped above anything else in our lives. And we would bring him that glory by going forth and making disciples of Jesus. Inviting others into that relationship. Allowing Jesus to be the reconciler, the redeemer that he is Come to be, uh, to bring us into the eternal joy of glorifying and worshiping our God. Now, this week, we're going to look at the vision of Northway Church. And uh, vision is different than mission. Than mission Mission Uh, is again, why we exist. It's who we've been called to be, what we've been called to do. It's our marching orders. We did not come up with that mission statement of our own. This is driven by scripture handed down to us by God. He's given us this mission as his church. But vision is ultimately, as Matt was saying even earlier, vision is ultimately that dream we have in the context of that vision. What ultimately we long to see come about as the fruit of Our mission, Uh, we talked about this last week, you know, companies, organizations all have mission statements, but they also have vision statements. Think about it this way. Even last week, we looked at Google's mission statement. Remember this one? Google's mission to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. That's the mission of Google, is to get all the information of the world, gather it together, make it accessible. But here's the vision they have that once that's in place, the vision is to provide access to the world's information with one click. That's what Google's about ultimately. They, they want us to think of any given topic, put it in and one click, it's all there. Now, I, maybe they're doing that, maybe not. Sometimes I ask Rabbi Google things and doesn't give me what I want, but nonetheless, that's their vision. Amazon, interesting, their mission statement is to serve consumers through online and physical stores and focus on selection, price, and convenience. That's the mission of Amazon, to serve consumers through these platforms at good prices. But here's their vision, and this is brassy right here. Look at this, to be earths. Now, when you start right there, (laughs) but to be earth. Earth's most customer-centric company, where customers can find and discover, and notice this word, anything they might want to buy online, and endeavors to offer its customers the lowest possible prices. Man, that is bold. Like, it's not just enough to be to, to serve consumers through stores and online stuff. We want to be Earth's greatest anything for you. Whatever you think of, we want you to be able to buy it. And that's their, that's their vision. And that's what they're working towards. Ultimately, any given company, any given organization has to know why they're here and then an aspirational value of what they hope comes from it. Now, that being said, when we take, we take the mission of Northway Church, we exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, what we have before us is a dream. Is a vision of what we hope might be the fruit of that. What we really want to see is that our city would encounter the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of Jesus. That's what we're after. That's what we're hoping. That's what we're praying for and putting before that God would accomplish in our midst and in our day. And every word in that vision statement, the fruit that we long to see come from this mission, every word is intentionally chosen. So for instance, when we say our city, we want our city to encounter this. Our city, by our city, we mean the people and the context of which we've been sent on mission into. Implicitly, contextually, certainly Dallas would be an obvious primary target. It is our geographical anchor. That's where we are in this particular context is this local church in the city of Dallas. Certainly that would be true, but we intentionally didn't say for Dallas to encounter. We said city, because here's the deal. Our members live in more than just Dallas. Our members serve in more than just Dallas. There's the surrounding cities of Dallas. We have extended uh, family members and missionaries who are serving global cities around the world. And so simply put, we, we want wherever our members are to be the context for where they are living on mission to bring glory to God by making disciples. And that the fruit of that is that that particular city, that people, that context would be uh, invited in to encounter the truth, goodness, and beauty of Jesus. So that's our vision is wherever we are, these people. And you see this again in scripture, leveraging those contextual opportunities. In Acts chapter 17, Paul's in Athens. He's meeting with the intellectual elites of the Greco-Roman day. And he is letting them know why they're here. He simply says this in Acts 17. And he, that is God, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, their habitation, that they would seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Like this, this is what Paul is saying is that where people are is no accident. God has providentially put people in both the generation that they're in and the particular boundary of their habitation and where they live on purpose so that they would have an encounter with the living God. Like that's why we are. And that's, that's not just true for those around us. It's true for those of us in this room. You may be longing to get out of Dallas, but let me tell you, you're here. This is where the Lord has you. And it's for a reason. You may be long, You may wish you're born in a different generation. You're here. He has us here right now for such a time as this that we would have an encounter with the living God. And that word encounter is also very intentional. For our city to encounter the truth, goodness, and beauty of Jesus Christ, that word encounter simply defined means to come face to face and experience something or someone for the very first time. For, for us, we, we want our city to experience what those of us in this room who are followers of Christ, what we already believe to be true, and that is the something that our city is searching for is actually found in a someone. And his name is Jesus. Not the misunderstood version that our culture has led them to believe Jesus is or that sin has deceived people into believing that he is or isn't, but really a true encounter with the Jesus of the Bible, an encounter That kind of Jesus, that particular Jesus that the Bible tells us who he is, that they might encounter him for the very first time. And there's really three different kinds of people groups in mind when we think about encountering Jesus for the first time. One is certainly those who we would define as unreached. We talked about those last week. Not just those who haven't come to faith yet, but those who are literally unreached. People who live in parts of the world and particular ethnic groups in the world and communities where there just simply is no access. There is no church. There is no Bible. There is no mention of the name Jesus. And we want and long and pray that as the fruit of our mission, we could reach those people and they would have a very first true encounter with the living God through Jesus Christ in our lifetime. We would love to see that happen. All people groups even the unreached ones, but not only the unreached ones, also the unchurched ones. And that could be simply those in the city of Dallas who they're not unreached because they've heard about Jesus, they've been exposed to Jesus, they've been exposed to Christians, whether it's you guys, myself, or those of us who work at those places, who live in those places, who play in those places, encounter those folks, and they know about Jesus, but they have yet to give their life to Jesus. They've yet to put their faith in Jesus And we want to reach those even who are unchurched among us, that they would encounter the true Jesus, not not the conception they have in their head or the baggage that came from church past, but they would truly understand him and and, and meet him and have a relationship with him. And, And then there's the third group that I would just simply say is also churched. Those who may have grown up in church, who are steeped in church, who may be know where Genesis is and they know where Romans is and they know where Philippians is when they turn in their Bible automatically. Maybe they know the stories, but, but maybe they still haven't put their trust in Jesus. They're trusting in religiosity. They're trusting in tradition. They're trusting in their own works, which is no gospel at all, no good news. But we wanna introduce them to the grace of Christ that has come for them to rescue and to redeem them. Whether it's the unreached, the unchurched of the church, we want them, those in our city, to encounter. And what we want them to encounter, notice those next three words, the truth, goodness, and beauty of Jesus. You may be familiar with those three words. Those particular words are specific transcendental properties or some would call philosophical aspirations um, or virtues. That truthfully, every one in our culture is searching for, whether they know it or not. These are popular terms, truth, goodness, and beauty. I mean, many schools, my daughters go to, two different uh, groups of my daughters go to two different classical uh, taught schools that are rooted in their mission statement has those three words, truth, goodness, and beauty. But these go back all the way to Greco-Roman culture where the early Stoics and Epicureans of that day they sought to figure out in those three terms what is most true, what is most good, what is most beautiful. And in their world back then, truth was always associated with the mind or the intellect. Goodness was always associated with the will or volition or we would even say an ethic. Um, And beauty was associated to them with the heart, with the affections. Um, And they would make it their life ambition to debate and to discover all day long what it was in the world around them that most embodied those three things. And in fact, that passage I read earlier from Acts 17, when Paul went into Athens, he met with the intellectual elites of his day up on top of a stone hill called Mars Hill, right across from the Acropolis there in Athens, Greece. If you've ever been there, it's right across from it. And they would meet up on top of there, and they would meet there solely to look upon the city and to debate what is most true, what is most good, what is most beautiful. And it wasn't until Paul came along that he began to unveil to them what you're actually searching for isn't found in the city. It's actually found in the heavenly city that has come down through Jesus Christ. And even in today's culture, in Dallas, all these years later, the endless pursuit is really no different. There are people all around us, where we live, where we work, where we play, who are still searching right now for what is true, for what is good. And for what is beautiful. And again, most times, like the Apostle Paul, when he goes into Athens, it just simply takes a quick survey of one's given city, one given one's given context, in order to discern what it is in that city that the majority of the people truly love the most, that truly deem the most true, the most good, and the most beautiful. And I want you to think about just Dallas for a second. When you think of Dallas, Texas, what is Dallas? Known for. Just throw it out. Throw some things. What is Dallas known for? Cowboys, Cowboys, I heard it right there. (laughs) Yes, you have named the God of our city. (laughs) And we have established a very large temple to that God in which people gather on Sundays wearing the church clothes of silver and blue to that demigod that they worship. There's no doubt. Now, again, in one search for what is good, that may be debatable as to whether that team is good or not. But nonetheless, football is there. What else? Money. Money. Wealth. You think about the origin of Dallas, rooted early on in oil that brought so much wealth and now the commercial uh, opportunities that are all around us in the commerce of our city. Right now, we are home to 23 of the richest Americans in the entire country live in Dallas. Lending tree uh, rated Dallas as number 18 for the most million dollar homes in all of America are here. Like this is a very wealthy city. What else? Shopping, Shopping. oh, (laughs) shopping, you went there. Did y'all know that Highland Park Village is the first first planned shopping center in all of America? It's the first planned shopping center in all of America was Highland Park Village. Dallas has more retail space right now per capita than any other metro city in America. Dallas has. Forbes ranked us number two in the nation for shopping, only behind Houston. And we will take them at some point. <laughs> but man, you could you could go on and on down the list. I mean, Dallas is also known for its arts. You might you may not think that, but actually Dallas is actually, when it comes to the arts, the lar- has the largest arts district in the nation. 19 blocks of museums and galleries here in Dallas. It, it is an art hub. When you think about Dallas, it's also known for its, its beauty and its image. There's such a pursuit of the external image in Dallas. I, I thought this, you know, I lived in Fresno, which nobody really goes to in California, but when I lived there, I would also trek down to L.A., And the most comparable city that I could find in all of California to Dallas was actually Beverly Hills. There's so much similarity in terms of the pursuit of external beauty and fashion. And uh, when you think about just the commitment in our city to so much, we are known in many ways for so much plastic surgery that happens here. People constantly searching for the fountain of youth in the city of Dallas the growing fitness craze that's around us, the attention to bodies, and not just for the sake of health, but for the sake of image. And you think about Dallas, we're also known, man, just for our pace and our business. Have y'all noticed how busy Dallas is? Like it's unreal. Like the South is supposed to be known for being slow, but not Dallas. We have such a pace here. Bestplaces.com ranked us number 10 on the most stressful cities to live in. <laughs> in the nation it is Dallas. We are such a hurried people. And you go, for what? The crazy thing is all of those things, we could go on and on. There's so many wonderful things that were named in there. And, but they become dashboard indicators about what it is our city values. What it is it rises to the top? Those first images of what Dallas is is chiefly what our city values in their search for what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. And many of those things don't get me wrong, are good things. They are common graces given us, given to us. Food, I mean, we could talk about food in Dallas, man. More restaurants per capita than any other city in Dallas, any other city in America other than New York City, is Dallas. It's a good thing, food's a good thing. But the problem is, is none of those things were ever to be where we land upon for what is ultimately true, good, and beautiful. They were images that God has given us that were meant to point us to Him, to reflect upon His truth, His goodness, His beauty that has been manifested in the creation but is not cons- consummated or is not fulfilled ultimately by the creation. The problem happens in a given culture. The problem we have in Dallas, the problem we have in any given city is when sin enters the picture. And because we have chosen to reject the existence of God, because we as a people do not wish to serve anybody but instead be served by everybody. We have made ourselves our own God and therefore we deem ourselves as the final arbiter as to what is ultimately true, what is ultimately good and what is ultimately beautiful. And the result when that happens is that each person's definition all of a sudden now becomes subjective because we don't view truth as objective outside of ourselves. We simply turn inward and go, truth begins with me. And what I deem to be true is what's true. It's subjective though, because everybody can do that. We, there is no objective goodness outside of ourselves that we can look to because we've turned inward. And now goodness is really just the result of one's preferred course of judgment. What I deem to be ethical, is what I deem is ethical and what you deem is what you deem and it's subjective. It's the reason why I can say that Die Hard is a good Christmas movie and everybody else is wrong, is we have our own subjective power on that and there's no objective beauty out there, simply it's just been reduced to personal tastes. And what we've done as a people, according to the scriptures, is we have suppressed the truth and the goodness and the beauty that is God And we have replaced it with a truth and a goodness and a beauty that is really found in us and in the creation. And anytime we put our stock in that, it will always lead to disappointment. It's the exact same thing that Paul tries to tell us in Romans chapter one. So if you're there, I want you to follow along with me. Romans chapter one, starting in verse 18, Paul is putting forth the beauty of the gospel of who Jesus is and why he came and what he's done But to get there, he's got to deconstruct culture a little bit and talk about why culture is as broken as it is. And I want you to notice how he describes the suppression of the truth, goodness, and beauty of God for our own and why it is futile. In verse 18, Paul says, for the wrath of God, and one could simply say the justice of God. That's what his wrath is. It is his divine justice. If you love justice, God loves it more than you. And his divine justice, his divine just wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There is a truth that is out there that God has given us. And Paul says, because of our own sin, because we wanna be God and we don't want God to be God, what we've done is we've taken the truth that is available to us and we have suppressed it. That word suppress, we've talked about that before, literally means to go against, go counter against its power. And so, what, what we do, I've described this before, it's like taking a beach ball in a swimming pool and trying to push it underwater. Have you ever tried that? It's a fun exercise in futility. Push that, and whoop, pops right up, right? Because that's not what it was made to do. It was made to be buoyant, to stay up here. But we try to push it under because we don't want to pretend that's what it's for. And the, Paul says the culture has done the same thing with God. We have suppressed the truth. And here, here's what happens. He says in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. You say, how so? Because God has shown it to them. Here's how, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And so they're without excuse. You go, how do you know that God is plainly revealed to me? Paul says, because you just have to open your eyes. Look around, look at the creation around you and ask yourself, is there a design if there is, then there is a designer. Is there a creativity around you? There is, then there must be a creator of that. It is plain and it is obvious. You, you can stand out and look upon the ocean and see the enormous swells of the sea and the sovereignty and the supremacy of the seas that make us look so little. We hid in a closet Friday night because there was a tornado threat, PTSD just ringing right out here at Northway. I'm hiding in a bathroom. That's how small we are in terms of the creation around us. And Paul says that's there on purpose so that you'll know there's somebody actually that's more sovereign than the tornado, bigger than the ocean who put those things there. There's a design around us. We've talked about this before. I mean, the way our bodies are designed, they're no accident. Imagine if your nostrils were pointing up, you'd drown in the shower, they're pointed down. The Lord did that as it's created. And you're supposed to see that. He says, it's all around you. If you just had eyes to see, instead of playing paralysis of analysis with your intellect to somehow think that you can outsmart God. But that's exactly what culture's done. Verse 21. Because although they knew God, oh, you know him, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But instead, they became futile in their thinking. Instead of looking outward at objective truth, objective goodness, objective beauty, we turn inward in our own thinking, our own estimation, and there, our foolish hearts were darkened claiming to be wise, oh, I am so much smarter than you, God. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We choose to worship the creation rather than the creator. Therefore, God gave them up. God gave them over is what it literally translates in the lust of their own hearts. Here's the idea of this. God giving someone over, there's a term for that. It's called reprobation. It tends to have a real negative lens with it. That's like, okay, I'm giving you over, forget you. But that's not what biblical reprobation is. Biblical reprobation is God giving you over in hopes that you'll come to the end of yourself and return home. That's what a loving father does. Paul says, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is to be blessed forever. Paul says, God is a loving God who says, okay, I have tried over and over to reveal to you beautiful things in the earth good things that take place, true things that are outside of yourselves in hopes that you would see them as a reflection of who I really am and your affections and your worship would go to me. But you claim to be smarter than me and you turn inward and you suppressed all those things and exchanged that truth for a lie and you've said that's what you want. So here's what a loving God does. A loving father at some point finally goes, okay, have at it. Go see where this gets you. Go invest your life into these other things that you think are true, good, and beautiful, and tell me how that goes. And once you realize it's futile, I am right here waiting for you and will take you in. Like this is our God, but yet it's what we do. And so you think living for yourself is the truest reason for your existence on this earth? Have at it. You think money and fame and material consumption is the greatest good that you can pursue? Have at it. You think the greatest beauty is found with silicone and a scalpel and a salon? Have at it. But the truth is, is all those things will eventually disappoint you because they are shallow images of what you are truly made for. A greater truth, a greater goodness, and a greater beauty. But... Here's the deal. At Northway Church, even though that is the description of our culture around us and our own hearts on any given day apart from God's grace, at Northway Church, we have a vision where the church is used by God to show our city something different, to show them something better, to lead those around us, to see that the epitome of what they are looking for that is true and good and beautiful is Jesus. And here's what the scriptures tell us. Jesus is the epitome of what is true. John chapter one, verses one through three, listen to this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And notice here, the word isn't a what, it's a who, he. Jesus Christ is the word. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, Not anything made was made. Jesus here is called the Word. Word in Greek is the word logos right here. It is the full embodiment of all truth. It's not found in a what, it's found in a who. It's in Jesus Christ showing us here that truth isn't rooted within us, it's outside of us. In the eternal God who's all-powerful and unchangeable. Truth is not just something we act upon. Truth is what acts upon us in Jesus Christ. Listen to Jesus' own words in John fourteen six. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. I love what Randy Alcorn said on this. Truth is far more than a moral guide. He didn't say he would show the truth or teach the truth or model the truth. He is the truth, truth personified. He is the source of all truth, the embodiment of truth, and therefore the reference point for evaluating all truth claims. God in his benevolence gave us truth when he sent Jesus for us and embodied now through his word and his living presence among us all the truth that we need fulfilled in him he's not only the epitome of what is true he's also the epitome of what is good according to the scriptures Jesus said in Luke chapter 18 when a ruler came and asked him he said good teacher what must I do to inherit eternal life and notice before Jesus even answers the question he redresses the question when he says to him why do you call me good no one is good except God alone In other words, Jesus was exposing the fact that this man wasn't connecting the dots, that the only reason Jesus was truly good by his own claim is because he's God. And unless you think I'm God, don't call me good because only God is good. But the reason you can call me good is because I am God. Jesus was exposing that fact. And I love what pastor theologian, Harry Reeder said about this. He said, Jesus reminds us here that his good is not the flimsy impostor in our society that is determined by the collective assent of what is permissible behavior in a narcissistic culture, nor what is in vogue as a passing fad, but rather in the immutable character of who he is as God. In other words, true goodness doesn't ascend out of us, it descends for us. In Jesus Christ, according to his unchanging character, word, and will. And not only that, Jesus is also the epitome of what is ultimately beautiful. Listen to David's confession. Psalm 27.4. David prays, one thing that I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after is that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Did you hear what David didn't say? He didn't say, I can't wait to get to heaven. I can't wait to be in the eternal temple of God so I can just behold the beauty of streets with gold and crystal sea. So I can can look at the architecture of the building that we're in. It's gonna be so amazing. It's so beautiful. No, no. To David, the most beautiful thing in all of heaven is the Lord himself. He is. What's beautiful? And that's where his gaze longs to go. Again, Pastor Theologian Harry Reader said, beauty does not claim to be a product dependent upon the evaluation of, a behold- of an onlooker. In other words, beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. It is the Lord who is beautiful. He is the God of beauty. A beholder may or may not have the ability to appreciate beauty, but one thing is clear. The beholder does not make beauty, for God is beauty. Like this is the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of who Jesus is for us. It's what all the true and good and beautiful things around us are meant to reflect of and point to. is him. Turn to Philippians real quick. You got your place there, Philippians chapter four. Just wanting to see two verses here where Paul kind of brings all of this together for us. Paul's writing his letter to the church at Philippi, and he Concludes by saying this in verse eight of chapter four. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul drops eight virtues in these two verses combined with two appeals. And what he's doing is he's synthesizing the truth, goodness, and beauty that was found in his day in the Greco-Roman culture. The very first one right out of the gate. If anything is true, he speaks to truth. The next three summarize goodness. If anything is honorable, or some translations say noble. If anything is just, or some translations say right. If anything is pure. And then he synthesizes what's beautiful in the last four. If anything is lovely. If anything is commendable, or some say admirable or good repute. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy. It's as if he took straight from the common lists that existed in his day in Greek literature and in context, what he does is he takes these. He says, if anything is these things, as you have seen it in me, heard from me, whatever, all that Paul has been doing all throughout his letter to the Philippian church is showing that these things find their ultimate consumption, their consummation in Jesus. That's where it lands. The ultimate thing that is true and good and beautiful is Jesus. And so, therefore, he says two appeals here. Number one, as believers, think upon them. Let your mind, let your affection dwell upon the truth and the goodness and the beauty that is in him. And then, secondly, put these virtues into practice, live them out the vertical and the horizontal. In other words, the church is to live in such a way that our entire existence, what we think, what we say, and what we do, orbits around the truth, the goodness, and the beauty that we know is found ultimately in Jesus and live in such a way that would lead others to have that same encounter. Northway Church, this is our vision, that by living out our mission to glorify God, by making disciples, that as a result of that, our city would encounter the truth and the goodness and the beauty that they're so searching for, but is not found in lesser things, but it's found in Jesus Christ. We exist to show the city around us something different, something better for what we were created for. But understand, and I've said this a hundred times, we can't go give that away, y'all, if we don't possess it first ourselves. If we are not an ecclesia, a church, an assembled body that really believes our greatest truth, our greatest good, and our greatest beauty is found in Jesus, then we'll never get excited about giving that away to a city who needs to hear it and see it and encounter it. And and Augustine once wrote about the kind of way that we're to live. He, He wrote a book called The City of God and talked about the city of God that exists, is supposed to exist within the city of man. And that's exactly where we find ourselves here in Dallas, Texas, and in all surrounding cities and to the ends of the earth, is that we are meant to be the city of God dwelling within the city of man, but not to be like the city of man, but to invite them into the city of God. Like that's why we're here. And so many churches tend to live, and I've been part of some that will live, live on the other two ends of the poles. Either church is gonna be against the city, meaning that they have an escapist mentality that the city is evil, the church is good, so let's just run from it. Let's get as far away from the city as we can. Let's seek isolation. And honestly, let's be like Jonah and actually seek its devastation and destruction. Let's go perch ourselves up on this high and lofty hill, overlooking our city and asking that God would bring fire down upon them. That's not what you see in the scriptures from the heart of Christ and the mission that he first came for. But so many others will swing to the other side. And it's not just this railing against the city, it's actually a desire to be of the city. And we don't wanna be this either. It's the most common trend I think we see in churches today is they simply love the city so much that they want the church to be just like the city. So they, they have the church begin to imitate the city in every possible way and end up being so bending so far to the culture that we quit seeking the city's renewal and restoration and rescue through Christ. And nothing nothing becomes distinct anymore. We adopt the culture's practices, the culture's values. And really what we do is we over-exalt a city's anthropology and we underwhelm with a theology. And we're all about the city and we're less about God and for the city in that regard. And we begin to look slowly over time, like so many denominations and churches in our culture, like a philanthropist organization working for the city council, rather than being ambassadors representing the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ that's come to bear upon the city for its good and its flourishing. Like, that's why we're here. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So no, the vision that we have in this church is not one that is against the city, not one that is of the city, but one that is for the city in the same way that God is for the city by offering to them what is most true, most good and most beautiful. And that is found in Jesus Christ. Amen? Man, that's a vision I wanna be a part of. I wanna finish my days when I breathe my last, knowing that I lived for the glory of God that led to the good of the people, that they would truly encounter the truth, goodness, and beauty of Jesus Christ through my life and through our church in the days that we have left. Let's rally around that. We're gonna spend the next 12 weeks, y'all, walking through this whole concept, fleshing it out through 12 unique values that we believe the scriptures tell us where to look like as the people of God living on mission, trying to seek and fulfill this vision. But what I'd love for us to do now is do a couple of things. One, I want to celebrate the truth, goodness, and beauty of Jesus Christ as we do each and every week through communion together as we remember Christ's broken body and shed blood for us. And uh, I'm going to Have our our members, if you're helping with communion, go ahead and make your way to the back, start passing them out. But while they're doing that, here's what I'd love for us to do as a church. I would love us to to pray right now. To pray, one, for Northway Church, that we would truly be a church that embodies the truth, goodness, and beauty of Jesus. But pray for our city. Pray for the people where you live, work, and play. Maybe it's family, maybe it's friends who are far from the Lord right now and need it in an encounter with the real and living Jesus. And pray that God would use us in the power of his spirit and the truth of his word to reach them. Let's pray together towards that end and then we will take part in communion together. If you're a guest here, if you're, if you're not yet a believer that you wouldn't say you're a follower of Christ, we'd ask you to hold off on the elements that are coming down the row. Those are for the church to remember and enjoy as a memorial the Is really the truth, goodness, and beauty of Jesus Christ embodied through his broken body and shed blood. And if that's not true of you, then just kindly ask you to hold off on that instead or consider the person and work of Jesus. But church, in the meantime, let's pray. Let's seek the Lord right now and then I'll lead us in communion here in just a bit.